0: We'd like to dedicate this particular VetGirl podcast to Dr. Gary Stamp, who served as the executive director of VEX for 30 years. He was a true advocate for our field of emergency and critical care, and we'll miss seeing him at conferences, exhibit halls, ACVEC, and iVEX. We love you, Gary. Hi, VetGirl here today with Dr. Armel Delafarcade, who's an associate professor at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. Armel, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. So today I wanted to talk to you because I saw you were a first author on a huge paper that came out of the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care. And this came out in January of 2019. And this is a paper called Curative or Consensus on the Rational Use of Antithrombotics in Veterinary Critical Care. First of all, how did you guys come up with this consensus? How was it coordinated? Who organized it? And who did it involve? Well, it's a really interesting question. This started
1: when um, a group of diplomats who all have an interest in anticoagulation and coagulation in small animal diseases came together to talk about the discrepancy in how people use anticoagulants and the lack of of guidelines and, and direction to guide people in when to use them and how to use them. And so we decided that it was worth taking a look at the literature Uh, the evidence-based literature, to come up with recommendations for people who treat diseases in dogs and cats as to when to start anticoagulants and which to choose. So it started as a a discussion between maybe a group of three or four ACFAC diplomats, and the plan was mapped out to do a thorough search of the literature to answer questions regarding thrombosis and anticoagulation in small animals. So this was done under the umbrella of the American College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care. And so a structure was proposed where five different domains were identified. And those domains included, you know, what are the populations at risk? What are evidence-based protocols? How do you monitor antithrombotics? How do you discontinue antithrombotics? How do you use antithrombotics? And so each of those w- was sort of a, a, a big topic under which there could be a lot of questions. And so each one of those statements became a domain. So we structured it similar to how, if, you, if you're if you familiar with the recover guidelines for cardiopulmonary resuscitation, where we had a series of topics, so these are our domains, under which there are many questions. And each of those questions can be assigned to an author who would then go and investigate the literature And look for articles that address the question and also the strength of the evidence. So does the article specifically look at that or is the finding a sort of a byproduct of that article? And then when all of those um, articles in veterinary medicine, a little bit in the human medicine field were put together, there were a series of recommendations or statements to answer each of the questions under each of the domains. And those were organized into a manuscript. So it's a really big undertaking. And the goal was to give it structure in the form of domains, um, questions under each domain, going to different authors, coming together to answer a question that was formulated in the same way.
0: It's fantastic information because it's basically having the experts in the area evaluate and come up with a consensus when very similar to what the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine does with some of their consensus statements. Now, what data was utilized to create this consensus?
1: Well, the worksheet authors performed an extensive literature review, MEDLINE, CAB abstracts. They looked at the human literature, the veterinary literature. They were able to include animal models whenever they were available. One of the challenges with this topic is that uh, the use of anticoagulants is growing, but there still isn't a lot of evidence out in the literature to guide people. And so it was very clear that we were not going to always find strong evidence for every question that we were asking. So that's okay, because you can then say there isn't enough evidence to make a recommendation. However, based on what they do in people and maybe based on what's been identified in animal models, then there are times when we can make a suggestion. So we may not have the evidence-based guideline to tell you to do something, but there is a suggestion in the literature that this would be reasonable. So we tried to put all that together to be as useful as possible for people who are considering using anticoagulants or antiplatelet agents in animals.
0: Wonderful. So as you mentioned before, there's five main domains. The domain one is defining the populations at risk. Domain two is defining rational therapeutic use. Domain three is defining antithrombotic protocols. Domain four is refining and monitoring antithrombotic therapies. And the last one, domain five, is discontinuation of anticoagulant therapy in small animals. I know it's a huge amount to cover, but Do you mind giving us uh, sort of a two to three bullet point summary of the takeaways for some of these domains for veterinary professionals? What do we need to know about this? Because I feel like a lot of people aren't comfortable using antithrombotics? Sure. I think the most interesting, one
1: of the biggest questions many people have is when should I use an anticoagulant or um, an antiplatelet agent? And so what diseases are most associated with thrombosis? And what's really interesting is if you look at the big retrospective studies of, of pulmonary thromboembolism or aortic thromboembolism, they all give a list of underlying diseases that were represented in that study, and some of the big ones that seem to feature prominently include sepsis, immune-mediated hemolytic anemia, uh, maybe use of corticosteroids. And so it's difficult to to rely on those studies alone because we've all treated dogs. We've all had dogs on prednisone, many dogs on prednisone, and it doesn't seem that thrombotic disease is a huge concern in all of them. So it's despite the fact that some of those underlying diseases feature prominently in the articles looking at uh, PTE or ATE, there's a little disconnect about using an anticoagulant in all of those cases. And that's where these guidelines come in handy. What we were able to do is identify a few diseases where animals are at, at what we consider high risk of developing uh, a clot. The two big diseases that we found in association, uh, what we would consider a strong association with the development of thrombosis, include um, immune-mediated hemolytic anemia and protein-losing nephropathy. So in those diseases, there was an association with the development of thrombosis in dogs and antithrombotic therapy was recommended for those two diseases. So that's very helpful to the general population um, in general. The next disease that was looked at was pancreatitis, and and again, we, we all learned in school that pancreatitis has a lot of inflammation, and those put them at risk for thrombosis, but there are a lot of dogs with pancreatitis that do just fine with no antithrombotic, and when we evaluated the literature, it actually seemed like a subset of dogs with pancreatitis, and those are specifically dogs with acute necrotizing pancreatitis, seem to be the ones that are at highest risk of developing thrombosis. And so as a result of that literature search, we suggested that severe pancreatitis, in particular acute necrotizing pancreatitis, may be associated with the development of thrombosis. And if we are going to use antithrombotics in that disease, it would be in dogs with acute pancreatic necrosis. In, in the remaining diseases that we looked at, including the use of glucocorticoids, Cushing's disease, and cancer, there is an association of the disease with thrombosis, but not strong enough to recommend routine anticoagulation. And so in those, and including sepsis as well, the recommendation was that there is a hypercoagulable state. However, treatment, routine treatment with antithrombotics can't be recommended unless there's a concurrent disease that is also associated with hypercoagulability. And I think that's something that comes through clearly in these guidelines is that you have to look at risk factors. So if you have a dog that has sepsis, for example, or Cushing's, just the presence of Cushing's doesn't really mean you have to start a blood thinner. However, if there is a second disease that is also associated with hypercoagulability, a second risk factor, then we recommend that antithrombotics be used earlier than you otherwise might do that. So the high-risk diseases, IMHA and acute necrotizing pancreatitis, where antithrombotics should be used, And then the sort of next wave of diseases, Cushing's, sepsis, cancer, that diagnosis alone doesn't warrant routine anticoagulation. However, that we suggest that antithrombotics be considered when there's other risk factors present. And that's something that's easily translated to the clinical setting. There's a a, a few other diseases, not all diseases that we sometimes consider associated with hypercoagulability were looked at just simply for the concept of time. And there will be a, a phase two of the curative guidelines. But when we looked at, for example, heart disease in cats, heart disease in cats or feline cardiomyopathy is strongly associated with ATE. I think everybody would agree with that. There are a series of risk factors like left atrial enlargement, spontaneous echocontrast that put them at particularly high risk. And so antithrombotic use would be recommended there. And then the few other diseases that were looked at, cerebrovascular disease, there really wasn't enough evidence to make a recommendation Heart disease in dogs, they're really, uh, it wasn't considered strong enough risk to warrant routine anticoagulation. So, in the diseases that we looked at, we were able to either identify a high risk, a moderate risk, or a low risk, and whether anticoagulants should be used regardless or in the presence of a second risk factor. So, that's where I think it's really helpful there. But then the second question is when, you know, the first question, when should I use an antitrobiotic? The second question is what should I use? And that's where it gets very confusing as well. There's a lot of options now. Some of them are oral, many of them are injectable, and many people are uncomfortable, you know, using long-term injectable anticoagulation. So I think the highlights that come out of that are that if you're looking to prevent a venous thromboembolism, if you recall a pulmonary thromboembolism is actually a venous thromboembolism. So for venous thromboembolism, the antiplatelets like aspirin may be less effective. And for aortic, thromboembolism, antiplatelet agents may be more effective. And that's really logical. Arterial blood is platelet-rich and uh, high flow, and venous blood is platelet-poor and has a low flow. And so anticoagulants as opposed to antiplatelet agents are probably more likely to be effective for venous thromboembolism compared to the platelets. For ATE, specifically when you're worried about an aortic thromboembolism, antiplatelet agents are considered uh, likely more effective simply because arterial blood is platelet-rich and high flow, and the evidence um, is there that the platelet agents may be more effective. So, And then the second question often has to do with, do I use aspirin or Plavix? Now, certainly aspirin is very inexpensive and has been used for a long time for the prevention of thromboembolism in dogs. Clopidogrel was initially very expensive, but is now very inexpensive as well. And there's really good evidence in cats that clopidogrel is likely more effective at preventing thromboimmunolism than aspirin and should be the the platelet blocker of choice. In dogs, there's not a lot of evidence to make a strong recommendation, but based on what we know in cats, there's a suggestion that clopidogrel may be more effective than aspirin. And that may be a little bit of a change for many practitioners who have used aspirin for a long time. But I think there is evidence in cats, for example, that There's greater risk of recurrence of aortic thromboembolism when cats are on aspirin versus clopidogrel, and that evidence is pretty good. And the next category of of blood thinners would be the heparins. And so here we have unfractionated heparin as an option versus the low molecular weight heparins. I don't know that a lot of people in practice are using injectable heparins, but in, in some disease states, I think they're warranted. And so the clear consensus there is that the low molecular weight heparins aren't clearly better than unfractionated heparins, but they're given once a day, they have reliable bioavailability, and they're efficacious. In general, when you're trying to decide between the unfractionated heparins and the low molecular weight heparins, there's a suggestion that the low molecular weight heparins are um, potentially the better choice. And then you may see some evidence in the literature just the past few years about a new anticoagulant, the direct. Factor 10a inhibitors, rivaroxaban, and those are growing in popularity because they're potent anticoagulants that are also oral. And so that bypasses the difficulty of dealing with uh, injectables long term at home. And so the, the group looked at comparing the use of direct factor 10a inhibitors to the unfractionated heparin in dogs. And there isn't a lot of literature out there because the use of this these 10A inhibitors of the rivaroxaban is still fairly new. But from what we can tell already in the literature, the curative group suggests the use of rivaroxaban in preference to unfractionated heparin and equivalent but also likely in preference to the low molecular weight heparins simply because it's efficacious and oral. So that's an important one, a new one that many practitioners may not have heard of or had direct experience with, but we're finding that it seems fairly safe. It seems very, uh, as efficacious as, as heparin, and certainly for dogs that are requiring long-term anticoagulation may be a better choice for many pet owners. The other domains looking at protocols, one of the questions had to do with whether you can use aspirin and clopidogrel together, and that was deemed acceptable for sure. It certainly is pretty common in people. Interestingly, the evidence supporting Plavix or clopidogrel is strong enough now that we don't recommend using aspirin as a sole antithrombotic in cats that are at risk for ATE, but dual therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel is certainly acceptable. Another interesting point that came out is the use of warfarin is no longer recommended, And uh, we do see some dogs being started on warfarin, um, maybe because there's those papers out of Colorado where warfarin is used after valve replacement in dogs and some protocols are nicely outlined in there. But based on the evidence and the narrow safety margin of the use of that drug, And the alternatives, the committee suggested that warfarin should not be used in dogs simply because it inconsistently improves outcomes and is commonly associated with bleeding complications. So if you're tempted to use warfarin, just think of your alternatives. The next part looked at how you monitor these drugs, and that's always a hard one for many practitioners as well, is I'm okay recognizing the need for the drug and I'm okay starting the drug, but do I need to monitor this drug and how do I do it? When it comes to the the heparins, there's not a lot of evidence in animals looking at this. There's some evidence in people. Certainly, the heparins can be monitored using an anti-10A activity, which you can send away for at some of the diagnostic laboratories. For unfractionated heparin, the recommendation was that anti-10A monitoring should be used. And I know many people find that the PTT is what a lot of people use in the literature, but that monitoring unfractionated heparin with the activated partial thromboplastin time, while it's easily available, hasn't found to be very effective in titrating the dose appropriately. So if you're going to monitor that, the recommendation is that you use the anti-10A. For the low molecular weight heparins, there wasn't enough evidence to really suggest that we monitor them routinely, and so that's helpful. The next piece that I think was kind of helpful that answers a lot of questions for practitioners is, if I have a dog on an antiplatelet drug or on uh, an anticoagulant like heparin, but they need a procedure, what do I do? And certainly, we encounter that in the referral setting, and, and many people will encounter that in practice. And so, for the purposes of this question, we looked at dogs that are at high risk of thrombosis, dogs that are at low risk of thrombosis. And the recommendation really is that if the dogs are at very high risk of thrombosis, then you should continue the antiplatelet drug or the anticoagulant drug through surgery. And that may seem scary and not very intuitive, but if you look at antiplatelet drugs first, dogs that are receiving Plavix or dogs that are receiving aspirin need to stop that drug a week ahead of time in order for the platelets to recover. And at dogs at high risk of thrombosis, that it may not be safe to take them off those drugs for that length of time. And the bleeding that you see as a result of being on antiplatelet agents is not significant enough to weigh the danger of being off the drug. So you can perform surgery on dogs that are receiving platelet blockers. Of course, you have to watch hemostasis and be aware there may be a little more bleeding or oozing. But if they're at high risk of thrombosis, that's considered safer than taking them off the drug. When animals are receiving a heparin and they're at high risk of thrombosis, the recommendation is also to leave them on the drug. However, because heparins are dosed daily, you can time the surgery to coincide with when there's no heparin in the bloodstream, so at the nadir of the heparin dose. And certainly that's basically at 24 hours after giving a low molecular weight heparin. So that's an easy enough manipulation to do to make surgery in the presence of heparin as safe as possible. And then finally, discontinuation of blood thinners. I think we worry you know, about whether you have a rebound hypercoagulability, whether these drugs have to be tapered or not. And in people, that you'll, there's a fair amount of literature investigating rebound hypercoagulability, and they look both at markers of hypercoagulability and whether they go up when you abruptly discontinue a drug or they look at the incidence of clotting if you abruptly discontinue a drug. And we don't really have this evidence in dogs. There's just a few papers that have come out recently that look at markers of coagulation. But based on the few papers that we have and the evidence in people, the recommendation is that for unfractionated heparin or for the uh, rivaroxaban, the factor 10A inhibitor, taper is suggested but no tapers needed for low molecular weight heparin. That's pretty helpful as well, at least as a guideline until we can do more studies specifically looking at those topics. So I think that's those are the highlights. I mean, I think what, what I would encourage most people to get out of these series of articles is when to consider anticoagulation. And again, IMHA and protein-losing nephropathy would be the two big ones. And to look at risk factors would be another big take-home point. If you have a dog that comes in with pancreatitis, but he's also cushionoid. That's two risk factors. And in my clinic here, we would be more likely to consider either an antiplatelet agent or an anticoagulant when we identify multiple risk factors. So you have to think about um, concurrent diseases and whether they are also known to be associated with hypercoagulability. In terms of what kind of drug to choose, think about platelet blockers when you're worried about arterial clots, think about heparins when you think about venous clots. Riveroxaban is an emerging anticoagulant that I think while it's still expensive, it's a pill and it's given once a day. So for many people, it's, it's easier to administer. There's growing interest in that drug, both in people and in animals. And, and I think you'll see more literature on the topic. When you need to do surgery on an animal that's on a blood thinner, try to think about whether they're at high risk of a clot or low risk of a clot. If they're at high risk, then try not to stop the drug and maybe time the procedure for when you have as little heparin in the bloodstream as possible. If they're at low risk of the drug, you can go ahead and discontinue it because the risk of bleeding from the drug is higher than the risk of being off the drug. So think about high risk versus low risk. And then in general, when you're looking to to remove a drug, think about a taper until we have evidence um, one way or the other. It's always safest to taper these anticoagulants to avoid a rebound hypercoagulable state. Wonderful. I think those are the highlights.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that was amazing and fantastic. I think two important takeaways, again, um, like you mentioned, when in doubt, if you're not sure if your patient is hypercoagulable, the two biggest diseases that we see it again, again, are protein-losing disease and immune-mediated disease. And more importantly, work with your local veterinary specialist if you have any questions on this, or your local cardiologist, because in some patients, the use of antithrombotics is really important um, just to prevent some of these devastating uh, potential complications I do wish they would make clopidogrel more palatable to cats. Uh, it just seems really right hard to give, you know, um, and owners have to buy gel caps. It's very high maintenance. But I do agree. A lot of these are so much safer than what we used to use, you know, one to two decades ago. Any sure. last takeaways for us?
1: No, I mean, I think the, I, I keep your eye out in the literature for um, a part two. I mean, some diseases, like we didn't really get a chance to look at heartworm disease that's coming um, and a few other diseases that we didn't get a chance to address. And I really like your idea of working with your local veterinary specialists. We do see a lot of thrombotic disease. Sometimes you don't find it until you look for them. And we may start an anticoagulant and then work with the general practitioner as they follow up with that patient. And we're happy to do that. So, well, there's a lot of interest in thrombotic disease in animals right now. And I think it's really something we can work together to control.
0: Excellent. Fantastic points. We previously did a podcast on assessment of hypercoagulability. And I think the important other takeaway is a lot of people confuse hyper versus hypo coagulability. So remember when we're using our PT, PTTs, those are typically testing for hypo coagulability. And it's harder to test for hyper coagulability. We're using Rhomboelastography or D dimers or other things, and a lot of vets don't have that readily available. But there is some interesting data from Deb Silverstein, the criticalist at, at Penn, where they found that shorter PTPTTs. Um, may be suggestive of hypercoagulability. So that PT of four seconds instead of seven seconds. So definitely make sure to check out um, our other Vet Girl podcasts or check the veterinary literature on that. And with that, I just want to thank you so much. That was a, an amazing summary of five really important consensus statements that are out there. Thank you so much for taking the time to do today's Vet Girl podcast. You're very welcome.